Now, I'm speaking to my fellow Christians, brothers and sisters, primarily right now. But I will say that if you wouldn't call yourself a believer, then think of this, what I'm about to say, as what you are getting yourself into if you decide to follow Jesus. So, brothers and sisters, if you are going into the world with a message of repentance, which means a message telling people to turn away from sin and to trust in Jesus for God's forgiveness, then be prepared for opposition and rejection. That's it. If you are going to go into the world with a message of repentance, then be prepared for opposition and rejection. Or, as Peter would phrase it, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes on you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. Now, I'd, I haven't started this way because I'm feeling particularly sad this morning uh, or hopeless. But I'm saying this because this is where Mark takes us. It's not the only thing that he's said about the, the kingdom. If you've been here for the last a few weeks we've heard about the success of the kingdom. We know that the message will go out and by the power of God it will achieve a harvest and it will grow into a huge tree. We've got much to rejoice in. But today, the story hits the brakes. We've just seen Jesus uh, in the boat, as Dan has reminded us of, extraordinary power over the storm. Then we've seen him heal this demoniac again amazing power look at what it's like to be with Jesus he raises Jairus's daughter from the dead a woman who's had a problem that nobody could fix is healed just by touching the hem of his coat man Jesus is on fire but then all of a sudden in just a short few verses the story feels like it comes to an abrupt halt. So that's what happens at the beginning of chapter 6. Jesus arrives, he comes back to his hometown, and three things stand out as a contrast to what we've just seen and make us ourselves surprised at such unbelief. So what we've just seen is we've just seen Jesus' ability, his power. We've just seen uh, that the... Our people are amazed at what Jesus can do. And we've also seen Jesus calling on people to have faith in him. And then he comes to his hometown, and what happens? He's not able to do miracles. Jesus is now the one who's amazed, and he's amazed at their lack of faith. The mood has changed very quickly. And it's into this context that Jesus then sends out the 12. And so that's where we're going to focus the rest of our attention this morning on verses 7 through to verse 30. We didn't read verse 30, 
but let's just look down there together and you'll see that the structure is again a little, as they call it in the academic circles, Markan sandwich. Right, so look in verse 30. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. You see that? So the story starts in verse 7. You've got the heading there, Jesus sends out the 12. And although in our Bibles another heading breaks in where it says Jesus feeds the 5,000, you can see from verse 30 that actually that's the completion of that same little story. And it's a sandwich because they get sent out, that's the first slice of bread. The story about Herod and John the Baptist, that's the filling. And then verse 30 is the other slice of bread. So it's a little sandwich. Uh, But what I want to concentrate to uh, begin with is on the filling. So Mark interrupts his story. Jesus gathers the 12, he sends them out. But then he has this really long digression on John the Baptist and how he's killed at the hands of the Herodians. It's a great big filling and we need to pay attention to it because that's where Mark wants to teach us something. So, let's firstly look at John the Baptist and his story. And it's a picture of the domain of darkness. So as the disciples are going out, they're preaching, news comes to Herod of Jesus and of him, probably of him sending out his disciples and of the types of miracles that they're doing. And then there becomes this little bit of a puzzle. Who, who is this guy, Jesus, and what's going on? They speculate it might be one of the prophets. Herod says, perhaps it's John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. And that's where Mark's digression really takes off in verse 17. And we find out the reason why is because Herod himself had bound John. And he did that because he has uh, taken his brother Philip, is married to a woman, and he's taken his brother's wife and made her his own wife. And we find out that um, because John says that that's not lawful, there hasn't been a lawful divorce with Philip. And so this is um, adultery. And so straight off the bat, we're introduced to a picture of the world, the domain of darkness, and adultery. And John, as a good prophet, and as somebody who's faithful to the message, says, this is wrong. You can't do this. And so he calls him, both of them, to repentance, to turn to God and to walk in his ways. And that incites in Herodias malice. Which, if you don't have a dictionary, means the desire to harm someone. Ill will. And I think there's bitterness. The picture we have is she holds a grudge against John. She's calculated and she's vengeful, and she's waiting for a time to kill him. That's a really strong desire that Herodias has. She's really, really, really bitter about John telling her that her lifestyle is not godly. And she hates him. 
and wants to kill him. But she can't. Because Herod knows that John is not an evil guy. It would be wrong, wouldn't it? In fact, he even says, Mark records it as, John was righteous and holy. John's above reproach. He's not actually done anything wrong, and he knows, it. He knows that. Herodias probably knows that too. And so instead, John, uh, Herod rather, sorry, tries to walk uh, a middle path. I'll keep my wife happy, but I'll keep... Uh, but I won't do the wrong thing, right? So I'll just imprison John. So he imprisons John, mind you. If you're thinking, we know where the story goes. If you're in a situation where you're trying to uh, fudge the truth, beware of trying to hold on to, ah, I think I can please both sides. I think I can kind of get away with doing the right thing and kind of doing the wrong thing, but not really doing uh, the wrong thing. Beware. So that's the situation Herod's in. But then an opportune time time comes, doesn't it? Perhaps Herodias has spotted it. Perhaps she knows what Herod's like. So Herod, Herod throws this party. And it's a picture, the party itself is, a, is an arrogant party. It's a boastful party. It's a showing-off party. He's got all the important people around him party. And there he is at his fancy party, and, and out comes his daughter-in-law. It's a picture of perversion. It doesn't take... Uh, I don't think that it's uh, simply imagination. Uh, I think it's just that... Um, a lack of naivety uh, that gives me an impression that this is not an innocent dance. So out comes uh, Herodias' daughter. She dances for this uh, group of probably men. This is weird. And we're supposed to feel that. This is a picture of the world of darkness. And she pleases Herod. And so Herod, probably full of himself, gets a little bit boastful. He's impulsive. And he blurts out, I'll give you whatever you want. That's a crazy thing to say. But we all know the pressure of people-pleasing. We know what it's like to be in that situation where we have got ourselves kind of worked up into a situation. Before you know it, we've said things that, oh man, we really wish we didn't say that. And so that is the situation that Herod is now in. He's intoxicated, perhaps in two different ways. And he's made this impulsive, irrational offer up to half my kingdom. And she, the daughter, rushes back into her mum, which suggests that the plan has worked. What shall I ask for? 
and Herodias pounces on it. I want the head of John the Baptist. That's gruesome. That's gruesome. This is a picture of the domain of darkness. And that is a gruesome thing to ask for. In order to silence the prophet, I'll literally sever his mouth from his body. And now Herod is grieved. Now he's caught because where does he go to now? Right? It's difficult to keep all of your sins afloat. Right? And now he's like, oh no, my lusts combined with my great big party, combined with my impulsive and rash, foolish mouth, heart, and my desire to please people and to please my wife have got me in a pickle. Because if I deny my daughter-in-law, that's not going to go well in front of all these people that I'm trying to show that I'm powerful, reliable, and trustworthy. Is it? Okay. But if I grant the request, I know that John is a righteous and holy man, and I know that that... I already know that I've broken God's law at one level. Now I'm really going to break God's law. But he's a coward. He's a coward. And he's into self-preservation. Not only is he into self-preservation and a coward... But so are all the guests. There's a sin of omission present here as well, as everybody looks on. This is wrong. Why did nobody pipe up and say, don't kill John, he's a righteous and holy prophet of God. That would be sin. Because everybody else is in the business of self-preservation and cowardice as well. And so Herod gives in. It's a tragedy. This is a picture, and the one who's at the, who gets the blunt end of the stick, or the sharp end of the stick, or however that saying goes, is John, the good guy in the story. He's the prophet. He's the righteous and holy person. And I think what we've just seen, and partly I think the reason why John does this extended description, is because it's a picture of a house divided. We heard about if Satan's house, uh, if Satan is casting out demons by Satan, then his house is divided and it cannot stand. I think we see a house divided here. I think we're supposed to see the kingdom of darkness. and I, suppose, I think we're supposed to see a picture of sin. It's a messy web that's complicated. And I suspect many of us 
can resonate with the kinds of subtle sins and things that are going on beneath the surface. That's what John wants us to see, a picture of darkness. And it's into this world that the disciples have been sent out. And that's why we have a sandwich. Because it's into that world that the disciples are sent out to preach a message of repentance. And I'll just make a side note here. If you are currently in this world, do repent. Do turn around, turn away from your sin and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That is possible for you. Okay, so that's the first thing that I think John wants us to see, the kingdom of darkness. But there's something else. There's another reason, I think, why John has stuck this story in. And that's because John and Jesus have a similar story. And so he's written the story in such a way that we can, once we finish the gospel, can see the parallels between the two accounts. And I'll just show you very quickly some of those parallels. You want, don't you worry about turning there, it'll take too long. I'll just list them out. Firstly, both John and Jesus are righteous and holy. We've already seen that in verse 20, but that is precisely what um, happens to Jesus when he stands before Pilate. What has he done wrong? Nothing. Both are bound and silent. Jesus is bound in the, gar- in the garden of Gethsemane and led away and silent like a sheep before its shearers. And John, in this account, is silent because he's nowhere. Both have someone seeking to kill them. In the case of John, it's Herodias. In the case of Jesus, it's the Herodians and the chief priests. Both are caught at an opportune time, which is precisely the language used when Judas betrays Jesus. Both are executed by vacillating cowards under pressure. Vacillating means unable to make a decision and flip-flopping between the two. Both have disciples take their bodies and lay them in a tomb. And if that doesn't have you thinking, oh, there's one other little bit, (laughs) wait for it. The point is John wants to see, wants to show us that John and Jesus are connected. That's the first thing. But not only that, the beginning of the story where they're sent out is written in such a way that we're supposed to see that Jesus and the disciples are connected. So I'll just list a few things uh, that connects them. To begin with, they are sent out with authority over unclean spirits, which is what we've seen of Jesus. That's been a common description of him. They're sent out to heal, and they're sent out to preach. 
And just as we've seen that Jesus was not received and had no welcome, so he, in his description, as he sends them out, prepares them for no welcome. Look what he says in verse 11. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you. That was the note in that mission. The note in that mission was, you're out on a kind of Exodus-type mission, just your staff and your belt, and he just prepares them for places that won't receive them. That's just what's happened to him as he's come home. And so what are we left with by the time we get to uh, verse, uh, the end of verse 29? We're left with John having brought all three groups together. And all three groups have a message of repentance. Remember that was John's key message, preaching repentance. That was the first thing that Jesus said when he, uh, in chapter 1 and verse 14, Jesus went out and proclaimed the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. And now the disciples are sent out with the same message. And look, I'll just show you that that's what John wants us to see. Verse 12, they went out and preached, what? That people should repent. It may even just be news for some of us here who have even been Christians for a while. Um, A message of repentance has gone out of fashion uh, presently. So just make note of that. That's part of the message. Repent and believe. Not just believe. Okay, so John's brought, uh, sorry, Mark has brought all three groups together. What are we supposed to see? Here's what I suggest we're supposed to see. Imagine John walking down the road. And John's life, as he walks down the road, we get to see the the part the, the the road of his life as it were we see him as a righteous and holy man preaching a message of repentance suffering unjustly and then killed and then following behind him at a short distance is a man named Jesus he's a righteous and holy man He's preaching a message of repentance and faith. He unjustly suffers and is killed. And then there's you, a follower of Jesus. What do you think the Christian life might be like? You're all walking in the same footsteps. Jesus is walking in the path of the prophets. You're walking in the path of Jesus. That's what I think we're being prepared for today. Why do we need this preparation? Why is this helpful for us and useful for us today? I think a big factor is because knowing what is normal 
in a given situation helps ease a lot of angst when that thing comes along. If you're walking through a situation, and you can probably imagine a scenario, and something comes along, and you don't know that that's normal for that situation, it can be quite scary. The unknownness about it can be very alarming. But if you know, perhaps you've walked that path before, you know what this situation is going to be like, and you know, oh yes, that's very normal, that happens. It has an amazing ability to diffuse the power of that thing, whatever it is. And I think that's the case here with opposition and rejection. I think we're instructed in advance so that when it comes, we are not so surprised and not so alarmed and not so disheartened. I think it's also here, I think it's just realism. And I think a good dose of realism helps to get us out of our fantasy worlds in which we live where we forget that we follow a crucified Messiah. And why does Mark tell us this here? I've puzzled over that. At this point in the narrative, why does it come in this way? And why does it come so abruptly? We haven't got to chapter 8 yet, where he starts teaching them about uh, whoever comes after me must take up his cross. And I wonder if the reason why he's put it in here like this and it does come so abruptly is because you just don't know when opposition or rejection will come. The narrative fits the reality. It comes as a surprise. And it's come off the back of the heels of great success. And so if that's the case, if that's the way that it works in your life, don't be surprised. Don't be disheartened. Now, finally, as we come towards the end of our time here in this passage, what would drive us to follow such a man and to communicate such a message and count such a cost to ourselves? Why would we get in on that? A number of reasons. One, because we know it's the truth. God, by the power of his spirit, has taught us that this is the truth. Secondly, because unlike John, Jesus did rise from the dead. And so we don't only follow a crucified king, but a risen and ruling king. So the path has changed. Now the path, the one in front of us, Yes, he has suffered unjustly. He has been killed. But where is he now? Risen from the grave. Ruling in heaven. Now, this is the one that you follow. This is the one that you're in, believer. Your path may look like suffering now, but you are on your way to glory. Thirdly, because Christ's love 
compels us. Christ's love compels us to communicate such a message because we've known the love of Christ ourselves. We've experienced the love of Christ. We've known now what it is to be loved by God and to have our sins forgiven. And so out of the overflow of that love, we go to those around us for love for them. Look what could be yours. Everybody is desperate to be loved. We see it all around the world. We've known the greatest love. And that love compels us to share it in love with others. That's why we would count such a cost. For the sake of Christ and for the sake of others. Who could know God and know the forgiveness of sins. Fourthly, because our rejection is one of the ways Christ is communicated in the world. Not that we go looking for this, but as we walk through it, the picture of Christ, the innocent sufferer, is painted before the world. It's a way that Christ is communicated to the world. And also... Because opposition is only half the story. So we go in hope. We go because although some will reject and the message to some will be a message of death and foolishness, for others it will truly be life. God's word will work and God's word will succeed in saving people. And so we go in hope. And finally, perhaps a slight twist in the tale. It started out feeling a little bit sad. And the tone might be, oh yes, much of the Christian life is, uh, is filled with things to rejoice in. But then there are some things like this, not so. We don't have time to have an extra sermon on this topic, but there could be. And that's this. The last reason is because it's better to be counted among God's people and rejected than to be received by all and lose your soul. Jesus can say this, remarkable, not grit your teeth and bear it, very, very sorry to be you, but this, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. That's because of Jesus. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy 
Rejoice in that day. Don't just rejoice. Leap for joy. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven. What God has in store for you, gazing upon the beauty of the Lord in his temple forever, is better than anything the world could give you or take from you. Great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. Just like John. So, speaking to Christians, and those of you who perhaps might not be Christians, but would like to know what you would be getting yourself into. If you are going to go into the world with a message of repentance, then be prepared for opposition and rejection. And rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. Amen.